There's a pattern in the technology speaking circuits that has been known for years, but not talked about much. That pattern goes something like this. With most guys in the industry, if they know 50% of something, they say, screw it, I know enough to talk about it, I'll give a presentation. Women feel the pressure in a different way. Most feel they need to know 100% of the topic before they'll offer anything in public. Sarah Chips has an insight into why this might be. She worked at a bar for seven years doing technical contract work during the day and working the bar at night. There's a lot of different verticals of folks that are different. When you're the person that's different in the room, you get quizzed. You know, it's like the thing where you're like, I love Metallica and people are like, name three of their songs. You know what I mean? It's like the same, they do the same thing in programming. If you're like, I love JavaScript and they're like, okay, show me how you declare a variable and like uh, sort of binary tree and do all these things. And you're just like, literally, I just am trying to eat lunch right now. Like this this is not an interview. Like I just said, I like JavaScript, you know? That comes with the fear of like, if I ask a question about JavaScript, a bunch of people are gonna come quiz me after this. So I need to know what I'm talking about. In my twenties, I worked in a bar for a long time. And like, I have so many peers that started around the same time as I did, like other women. I used to know hundreds of women that were coding and I could probably count the ones that are left on like two hands. I saw women leaving the industry so much. And I've seen so many of my friends and peers leave. One of the reasons why I didn't is because of that working in a, because like for all the garbage that you put up with working at a bar, software is kind of okay. <laughs> you, know, like, you're, you kind of expect it. Do you um, think that helps AOC? Oh, I bet it does. Oh, yeah. Of all like the drunk people she carried out and all those like idiots that said dumb things to her. I mean, now she's just like, I think like people say dumb things to her and she's like, ah, I've heard dumber. From the Linux Foundation office in New York City, this is the untold stories of open source. Each week, We choose an open source project or a person behind a popular open source project to uncover its untold stories. If you work with open source, and you do whether you know it or not, you're in the right place. Stay with us. Sarah was working the bar at night and coding during the day. Well, I was making seven fifteen an hour at my help desk job, and I would make like $30, $40 an hour at the bar. So it was like a no, no-brainer. It was a real slog getting to a point where I was making a good salary. Working at a bar for seven years gives you a certain perspective of humanity. And that perspective changes as the night gets older, sometimes bleeding into the next day at work on the help desk. I mean, to be frank, I was working in a bar dealing with assholes all night, and I was working in tech working with assholes all day. Like, just because people are shy doesn't make make them less inclined to do very uncomfortable things. I mean, I had everything from, like, people leaving pornography on my desk to people writing me letters about the top 10 reasons we should sleep together. And these are people I work with, like, every, every day. I can't even tell you the different things that happened to me as a young engineer, you kept quiet or you lost your job. Like the one time that I did actually raise something to HR, 
I was really punished for it. Like I ended up losing a lot of autonomy in my job because the answer was, this happened to you. Don't go around this group of, okay, now sit, stay by your desk. Don't get up. Don't socialize because otherwise stuff like this is going to happen. That was the lesson. Like if you, if you speak up, it's just going to punish you. It's scary. I think it's like, it's, it's, the answer is it's not good. You know, like you just have a fear of what might come next. You really explore the things that you might say that might trigger someone at any time. That's the fe- that was the feeling at the time, at least. Like, I need to be really careful of my dress, my behavior, be friendly, not too friendly, be open and welcoming, not too welcoming. And that ends up giving you a real chip on your shoulder. That was something that was difficult for me to overcome as, as I went into management too, because that's something you do need to overcome when you're in management. What I've learned is, and this applies to, I think, a lot of people who are underrepresented in tech, is there's no, nothing valuable about recognizing it. There's nothing, like if you recognize it's happening, there's nothing you can do. You know what I mean? It's it's like if you recognize it's hurting you emotionally or hurting you physically, then you can look for another job. There's no benefit. Like, because it, it's tempting to wallow in it. You know what I mean? Like, it's really tempting to say there's there's no benefit to saying I can't because the only thing you could do is look past it. I mean, unless you're physically being threatened or emotionally being threatened. For Sarah, those experiences were difficult to overcome as she went into management, too. That mental state of always being on the defensive, always putting up a shell of protection, projecting an aura of toughness needed to be overcome. In management, you need to learn ways to shut down people who are causing this type of trauma in the workplace. She doesn't feel that type of tension in her current work environment. It's not as prevalent in the workplace. Is she shielded from it because of her position? I am much more senior. So that's very possible and probable. I think like I work in a fairly welcoming environment. I I don't face any of the same things that I faced when I was younger. And I think it's a combination of a lot of things. I think it's my level of experience. I think I'm frankly a bitch. (laughs) I think people would be really afraid to say things to me now that they said to me before because like I'm I'm waiting for that moment where someone's dumb enough to do that. (laughs) You know what I mean? I think that opportunity, that experience, not being new, not being so doe-eyed, I think, I think that affords me a lot of privilege to not have to run into those things as much, or ever. Let's take a step back to see how Sarah got to this point. She went to Penn State for a year and a half as a computer science major, attending bar at night and going to school during the day. It's a lot more acceptable now to quit school than it was in 2002, so it was a major decision when she decided to walk away from school. Even though she left school, she knew she loved computers and computing and wanted to make it her career. At the time, Chubb Insurance offered what we currently call boot camps. Um, they had a program that they had just, that had been called the Top Gun program, it was for people that wanted to change their careers. It was mostly men, like men in their 40s. 
that um, either wanted to get deeper technically or, you know, start to do technical work. Um, we learned a whole bunch of stuff. It was a five-month program, eight hours a day. We did HTML, CSS, Visual Basic, Java, XML. Um, it was a whole month on XML. I don't even know how we did that. I don't even know how you spent a month on XML. That was my deep exposure and uh, the summary of my education. <laughs> For those of us who lived through the dot-com bubble, there are memories of dozens of startups folding. Back of the napkin schemes that had been funded, crashed and burned and bringing down the job market with it. It was a tough time to be on the street looking for a job. Sarah kept in contact with the other boot camp graduates and everyone seemed to be in the same bad way. It took an average of six months to find a job. Six months. That's a long time to go without work when you want to make it your career. When she first started applying for tech jobs, she heard nothing back. Finally, a friend of hers who worked at a temp agency started setting her up with temporary assignments, usually executive assistant roles. I remember she remembers one of them, one really of them clearly. Because my first day, the other woman working there sat down with me and she says, okay, so I need you to know that you need to wear pantyhose every day. And I said, in my head, I said, this, I cannot do this. <laughs> This is, I'm just going to jump off something. This is awful. Her friend at the temp agency reached out to see if she was still interested in computers and technology. There was a position available at Van Heusen, you know, the company that makes the shirts. They needed someone at their help desk to answer questions for a week. Without hesitation, she jumped at the chance. And I was like, great, I'll totally do that. I worked at the help desk. It turned A week turned into a few months. And then I happened to run into someone in their applications development department and told them how interested I was in doing that. And they hired me there. So that was, that was my process. That was my, um, that was my in. The job was in the applications development department, building visual basic applications as the front end to a SQL server back end. The application tracked fabrics, the textures of the fabric, the various colors. It was a fascinating role, uh, working really closely with users um, as it was an internal application. And at one point I was embedded with the user. So I, I was working directly with the, the sourcing folks on the fashion floor, which was very cool. She stayed with Van Heusen for two and a half years. And then in 2005, moved on to Bradco, a 70-year-old company that was like a, a Home Depot for contractors. They, too, were running a SQL Server database for data warehousing. There was a point-of-sale system called Cognos, which was Linux-based. The company did an import every night into SQL Server for the data warehouse to store all the transactions. And my job was just to make sure everything came over, just to make sure that nothing got lost. And when something got lost, like a transaction, creating a new rule around making sure that that didn't happen again. So that was really fascinating. It was an interesting job. The work at Bradco lasted two years. Then she was invited to her in. first web startup. Which yeah. is very cool. It was a company called Paylock. They make the boots for cars. So they make boots. They, you know, you don't pay your parking ticket and your car gets booted. So they patented a self-release boot where you could call an 800 number if your car was booted, um, pay off your debt, and then get a code. Oh, that's cool. Yourself. That's nice. Yeah, it's very convenient rather than having to have an officer come down and it'd be a couple days and that kind of thing. So um, that was really interesting. And we worked on the software that supported the call center. 
This was around the time the first iPhone was released in 2007, so most people would call using their cell phone. There wasn't the automated system that would supply you with a code. You'd have to call up Paylock and they would supply the user with a punch code. They'd put the code into the boot and it would unlock. The web applications were written in C-sharp and ASP.NET. In order to find out what others were doing with that technology, Sarah searched for meetups in the area where she could talk to like-minded people. That's when she became involved in her local tech community. I Googled and I think there was Microsoft meetups. There's a Microsoft location near us. They'd have meetups there and I didn't at all know what to expect. But it was really cool. It was the first time I'd been around a whole bunch of other people that were interested in the same thing that I was. Like I was very used to like my friends. They were not at all interested in what I was doing or I was the nerd. You know, like I was like, but Sarah, she's like a nerd. Like don't even, don't even ask her what she does. It's so annoying. <laughs> But uh, meeting other people that enjoyed doing what I enjoyed doing was very cool, very neat, a great experience. While attending community meetups, her social network was expanding. In September of 2008, Stack Overflow was released. Sarah met Jared Dixon, their first employee. Stack was one of those ideas that took hold instantly. It filled an immediate need for the community. Prior to Stack, the situation for peer exchange was pretty dire. Sarah became a member of that community. You know, when you're like searching for a recipe, you find a recipe for cherry pie, and then you have to read this woman's entire life story about how her grandmother had a cherry tree and her grandmother loved cherries, and then she used to pick them every spring, and then they would make a pie with it. So that's how she learned to do pie. And then when she goes to the store, this is how she finds the cherries. And you're like, oh my God, I just want to make a cherry pie. I don't understand why I need to read your life story. It was just like that if you had a coding question. It was like, uh, if I'm stuck and I have a bug, I Google that bug, and then I find some guy's blog post about like, here's his job and like, why he works on this thing and what he ran into. And you have to read two pages before you realize, oh, this has nothing to do with my problem. I have to go back and find something again. But for Stack Overflow, that was what things were like. Stack Overflow was just such an amazing resource and still is for developers because there wasn't anything like it at the time. Within five years, the Stack Overflow community had answered over 5 million questions, helping over 100 million people and eventually sold to Prosys for $1.8 billion. We'll be right back after the break. This episode of The Untold Stories of Open Source is supported by the Linux Foundation's 2022 Jobs Report. The rumors are true. 93% of hiring managers have trouble finding professional developers with sufficient open source experience. And 69% of hiring managers are more likely to hire certified open source developers than those with less experience. Get more insights by downloading the free 2022 jobs report at linuxfoundation.org slash jobs report. When Paylock decided to outsource their development, Sarah began working at a local magazine. The company wanted her to build a web application. She had never done that before, but the owner encouraged her to take on the project. And I was like, okay, I'll try it. Um, and so that's when I started blogging. 
because, you know, it was really neat to learn in public. I started blogging about my experience, the highs, the lows, what I was learning, things like that. And being involved in the Stack Overflow community, there's just this online community started to flourish. That was how I met a lot of the people that I still know today. With her background in Microsoft Technologies, she built the application in .NET. But that's when JavaScript came on her radar. As she started learning about it, there was a gradual transition towards open source. Well, there's two entries into open source for me. One, so I was a ASP.NET MVP, which introduced me to a lot of other folks um, working with Microsoft products. And I met some other people um, working on similar things and in open source. So even though Microsoft products weren't built in open source, they were, there were still open source products being built with Microsoft products. So I met someone named John, there's two guys named John and Kevin. They were working on an open source Twitter client um, with Microsoft tools. And I was like, this is very cool. I really like this concept of like building things and sharing them and learning in public together. So I'm gonna, I want to try to help them. And I think I built a feature for them. Being able to release that and get mentorship with them from them was so cool. At that time, JavaScript was like the redheaded stepchild to a developer. There was no Firebug yet, no jQuery. It was just vanilla-flavored JavaScript. But I fell so in love with JavaScript and open source that I think it was a 2010, 2011, when I officially broke from Microsoft I remember this really vividly because I wrote this blog post about how I won't work with Microsoft tools anymore because they're not open source. And I love JavaScript because it's open source. And then like six months later, they open source ASP.NET. And I was like, all right, well, <laughs> it was great. See how much influence you have? Yeah, I did it. I did it. You're welcome. <laughs> Sarah left the magazine in 2010 and went out on her own as a contractor. She was able to work three days a week and still make the same amount of money she was making working full-time. Co-working was starting to become a thing in New York City. The community was encouraging, introducing her to other women developers. The intent was amazing, and I ended up meeting a wonderful woman named Vanessa. We both realized that in our computer science classes and also just in general programming classes, we had been terrified to ask questions because we didn't really want, like, we didn't want people to be like, oh, like she should know that women are dumb. You know what I mean? Like, it's like you're speaking for an entire gender. With that background in mind, they co-founded an organization called Girl Develop It to teach in-person programming classes to women. The focus of this nonprofit is on helping more women become software developers. One of the initial decisions Sarah and Vanessa made was to build everything in open source. The entire curriculum was and is open source. And it was so cool because at the time, no one was teaching in-person classes that weren't in university, really. Or, you know, like those, like I mentioned, the, uh, the boot camps, like the one-off software development classes um, we didn't know if people would be interested at all. And we listed one on meetup.com and it sold out like overnight. Like it was, we, we sold so fast. So then we ended up scheduling more and went building curriculum. You know, we started with HTML, we wanted to JavaScript and all that kind of thing. And now 
I mean, girl development has taught over 100,000 women in 50 cities how to code, which is so cool. Um, and all based in open source, like the curriculum is still open source. People can learn on their own or they can go to inexpensive classes online or in person, which is very cool. Several years later, Reshma Sajani founded Girls Who Code. According to the wiki page for the project, as of February 2021, Girls Who Code has more than 80,000 college-aged alums who are entering the workforce. Girls Who Code clubs and programs have reached more than 300,000 girls globally as of March 2021. Sarah doesn't see this as competition but as a natural growth of the community to act as a pipeline for future women engineers. I think it's amazing. I remember when Reshma has first started and her vision and how much it's grown and it's amazing. And I love working with girls who code classes and meeting them, seeing the fire in these young women's eyes and the confidence and how excited they are and how like teaching girls that this is something for them is huge. Um, and exposing them to that environment is huge. And so Girls Who Code has had such an amazing impact. It's really cool to see. Sarah is now on the board of the OpenJS Foundation and a member of the Cross Project Council. She first heard about OpenJS during a keynote. I saw a keynote by Robin um, Ginn, who is the executive director of OpenJS. And I was like, this woman's amazing. Uh, I want to find out all about the organization. There is an important lesson that comes into play here. It's as much about being influenced by a specific person as it is being attracted to a specific organization. Sarah didn't buy into the concept of OpenJS initially. She bought into the person, Robin Ginn, first. Like, there's so many women in this field I admire. First of all, I feel like I know all of them. So, like, running into someone like Robin, who's amazing and incredible what she does, and new, I was like, this is so great. It was awesome to see her making an impact in the world of JavaScript because I've been part of the JavaScript community for so long and I just haven't seen, like if you think of every single open source project that is successful in JavaScript, everyone that created them looked the same, except for Ghost. Um, that's that's one um, that I really love and uh, isn't. Um, and so it just started to feel like it's really hard for a woman to make an impact you know, in the industry. And so seeing someone like Robin making such an awesome impact, that was really neat. Why did Robin have such an impact? Was it her personality? Was it the project? What was it? It's her personality. Also, she's very glamorous. I love that. Third of all, uh, she her vision for open source and JavaScript was very clear and well, like, well laid out and articulated um, and something I could really believe in. As she delved deeper into the world of open source and moved up into senior engineering and management roles, there is a specific skill Sarah learned about how to work with and manage engineers. This is something that senior developers learn late in their careers, is that the ability to influence the opinions of others without conflict is a superpower. And by conflict, I don't mean not disagreeing. 
I more mean in this case, conflict of a, a public fight or people getting angry or upset, like to be able to coach people through what you think is an incorrect opinion to a place where you're in agreement. It's hard. It's sometimes near impossible, but it's an incredible skill to have. Like I say, I love the bureaucracy in open source because that's a place that I've learned that I can be effective. That's a place where I feel like my responsibility is identifying when people have a limiting mindset of things should be this way um, and helping them to see the possibilities. And what I've learned is that takes time. Sometimes you have to say the same things 50 times in a row. Sometimes it doesn't work. Growing that muscle of like having a message, staying on that message, learning who to identify as allies and to talk through things. That has been a really cool learning as part of my work here. Sarah uses that skill to work with people who already have a set opinion. In addition, she finds herself in the position of being a liaison between the business vision and the technology vision. It's a critical part of her role in management. Many developers believe if they build something great, people will use it and love it, and that's all they need to do. I still talk to developers all the time that have that mindset. Um, and it turns out people have built the most amazing software in the world that absolutely no one has used. I bet the most amazing software ever built it was never touched by, like was touched by very few users. Part of the problem is that what is obvious to the developer is not necessarily understood by the end user. The developer sees clearly the end game and thinks they've provided a solution that will be an obvious one. It happens with managers too. Yeah, I really had that experience. I think a place I really learned that is when I worked at Stack Overflow. When I first started in the community role, I saw something that really affected me my whole career. And I saw how the actions of others were creating that, that deficit of diversity. I was at step 20 and they were at step one. And I was so angry that they could not see step 20. And I had to hit a wall of frustration and just a bunch of failures in a row to learn, to realize, yeah, they don't see step two. I need to, I need to get, if I want to make this change, I need to get them there. It's a fascinating observation because it's so true. Once you have that self-realization that you are at step 20 and you look at the organization and finally realize the reason they don't get it is because they're at step two. Yeah, because then you look insane, right? Like, like, like it kind of like clicks. You're like, oh, I look like a crazy person because like step 20 is so clear to me and it's so different from step two. The OpenJS Foundation's mission is to drive broad adoption and ongoing development of key JavaScript solutions and related technologies. It's something Sarah really enjoys participating in as a board member. I really like how kind everyone is. I like how open people are to conversations. There's no shutting people down. There's no, well, actually, there's a real desire to create an open community in a place that community hasn't always been that open. 
I mean, I really enjoy CPC meetings, the cross project council, just because I like to see the people. I'm just happy. I want to see how they're doing and talk with, to them about the problems in front of the organization or ideas or find new things we can do. Um, it, it's what I really enjoy about this group is just everyone's wonderful. Everyone just wants to leave the world better than they found it, which is so refreshing. When working with a project like this, there are always desired outcomes. There are things that the community is most proud of. In the case of OpenJS, they put together a member program so that individual people can join as members and learn about getting involved. Before that, it was just basically corporations. Jory at the OpenJS Foundation um, has really helped bring it and scale it so that there are now hundreds of members that um, can get involved, that can learn about our projects. Um, and it's a, it's a really cool system. It's something that I'm really proud of that we've done, and, and there's a lot coming. One of the major supporters of OpenJS is Sarah's Microsoft LinkedIn connection. As engineering manager for flagship infrastructure at LinkedIn, Sarah has found a support system for open source in her daily work. And LinkedIn is super supportive of, of um, open source in general. Nearly everything we build on is open source. So they're super supportive of employees who want to get involved, talk about their experience, and be an active part of the open source community, which is great. One of the things that makes it a fun place to work. As she continues her work in the open source community, she's starting to see a conflict arise between Web 3 and Web 2. But to paraphrase Uncle Ben in Spider-Man, with great conflict comes great opportunity. Here's what I see. I see a real conflict arising in the community around Web 3 versus Web 2. I think that we have an opportunity to get in front of it because there's a ton of awesome Web 3 built in JavaScript. People don't understand when they're against Web3, it's just open source programming like we've been doing forever. It's not predatory or, I mean, of course, there are parts that are predatory. There's parts of everything that are predatory, to be frank. Getting more comfortable and learning about what's possible and out there. There's just so many tools to help folks that are unbanked around the world or like to think about um, people that live in places that have unstable currency or, you know, not the access that we do um, and being able to empower those folks and use technology that you're used to. We haven't even started talking about that. So um, I think that's definitely something down the road. But I, I think there's a real opportunity in the community in general to find some middle ground here. As a personal project, Sarah, Brooke Moreland, and Maria Paula Saba set out to find ways to inspire young girls to love STEM and learning. Together, they created JewelBot. It was 2014. Their goal was to create something specific for girls, getting them interested in science and coding, which was perceived as mainly for boys. The goal was to make accessible products for young girls to build technology where they didn't even know they were building that technology. Science is like a really masculine concept for no reason at all. 
you know, like for some reason, when we, we often think things are girly and um, when we identify something as girly, the way we say it, it's like opposite of science, opposite of math, opposite of, you know, sports. It's like, it's a really reductive term. I think there's so much science in the things that are traditionally girly, you know, like even makeup, if you think of like cosmetic chemistry and the cool things that people do to make amazing nail polish that lasts for months, all of that is science. And so opening up that world to young girls is something that is our focus. And so that's really been a neat part of my life for the past seven years and a very rewarding part of my work. An influence on the project came from a familiar source. I have to ask, how much of an influence did your mom have on Jewelbot? My mom has a constant influence on Jewelbots because my mom is very kind. My mom's very kind. She uh, is an elementary school teacher, so she's very thoughtful about how people see things, especially things with technology that might they might not be familiar with. She's a really good influence, I think, especially for me, who is a developer who tends, again, to to run to solution, like the 20th step in the solution. She's really helpful in making sure I'm on step two. When I'm looking at her position in the company, do you see her as an advisor? What's her position in the company? We're such a casual group. There's four of us that work on Jewelbots. If you asked her, she would say she does customer service, but I, she does uh, customer service and logistics and um, an advisor and just all that things. It's great. It's great. It's great to work with my mom. <laughs> If you email Jewelbots with any questions, you can find her. Our program today was created with help from the team at the Linux Foundation, including James McLeod, GitHub tech extraordinaire with the Phenos Project, Chip Stewart, maestro of spreading the word, Melissa Schmidt, cool design and graphics, Noah Lehman, social media maven, and Jennifer Bly for her awesome voiceover talent. Music for the show is from Blue Dot Sessions. Our website, where you can listen to all of the episodes of the Untold Stories of Open Source, completely ungated and free, can be found on our GitHub project or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. I'm Mark Miller, back next week with another Untold Story of Open Source.